0: Randy, I'm so excited. I've heard about this newfangled thing. I think it's going to be massive. I think we should get in early and build some products for it.
1: Oh, you must be talking about um, MySpace. Yeah, that's going to be massive. I mean, I've already got this friend on it. He's named Tom. Uh, uh,
0: No, no, no. No, actually, I was referring to the Metaverse.
1: Woo! The Metaverse? Really? I mean... That's never going to happen.
0: Uh, well, actually, yeah, I'm not sure you or I could claim to be in the know enough to have a solid opinion on this, which is why I invited Mitchell Bayer goldman co-founder of Volta XR, to spill the beans on what the metaverse is, what it will be, and how we can build products on it or in it or for
1: it. Oh, wait. Okay. I watched Imogen Heap's video that was done using Volta. That was actually pretty cool but is that really metaverse?
0: I have no idea, but you'll learn all about that and also what TTP stands for and why that's important if you listen on.
1: Wait, wait, what is TTP? You got to tell me. Tell me now.
0: The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product.
1: Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love.
0: Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos.
1: Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more.
0: Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hi Mitch, so nice to welcome you today on the Product Experience podcast.
2: Thank you very much, lovely to be here.
0: So before we get into our topic today, it'd be Ace if you could give us a real quick intro to who you are and your background in product.
2: Sure. Um, so my name is Mitchell Bear Goldman. I'm currently the co-founder and COO at Volter XR. Um, my background in product, I guess, started when I worked in a dot management business when I was 16 and scaled up a sort of a back-end system that helped manage payment infrastructure and deal flow. Uh, I then actually went to investment banking, so maybe not as pertinent in terms of this particular conversation, but definitely shaped a lot of my experience. And then for the last six or seven years. Uh, I, this is my second tech startup that I've co-founded. Um, I advise sort of five or six other um, startups and have been ahead a of growth at Olio. So I've had the pleasure of seeing lots of different startups, lots, lots of different stages, from early stage all the way through to Series C um, and got to work amongst very, very, very different and unique products.
0: And so speaking about the products that you've been working on more recently at Volta XR, we are talking today about metaverse. Yes. Tell us a little bit about um, what Vulture XR is, and also what your kind of take is on the metaverse, because that's our sort of topic for today. So let's kick off with like, what is the metaverse?
2: So straight to a very expansive and undefined, undefined question.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Straight in for the kill. No, I mean, look, to, to tackle, I guess, the easier bit from my perspective, um, you know, in terms of what I'm up to at Volta and how that's kind of involved in the metaverse um, and can then kind of cover a little bit more on the metaverse what it, and what it is itself. Um, Volta is essentially a way for musicians, for artists to create their own 3D interactive experiences. Uh, what does that mouthful actually mean? Um, we've essentially created a tool that allows any creator to download it from our website. It's self-serve. And it's sort of like a Squarespace or a Photoshop, but specifically for musicians. So they can drag in palm trees and spaceships and create their own sort of 3D scene, as it were, and then essentially allow any of those 3D objects to be audio-reactive. So if I was to speak, they could move. If I was to play some sort of bass if I'm a DJ, uh, those objects could explode and shatter and new elements could come in and new videos could loop. So that's what we've been up to um, and you know have seen in the three years I've been working on Volta kind of what life was like pre metaverse or at least metaverse kind of blowing up in the, in the press and what it's been like post. And we actually got to see that firsthand when we went through textiles back in 2021. Um, but that kind of, I guess quite nicely leads me on to what even is the metaverse and <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: you know, there is this someone that I really look up to in this space, uh, who's quite prolific and his name's Matthew Ball. Uh, and I'll start with his interpretation or his, his, his definition of the metaverse, which is what's quite broadly uh, been defined in the press and quite a lot of people subscribe to, and I'll give my take on it in terms of what I think where we where we are on the journey and what I think's um, where I think we're headed. Um, but his definition, ad verbatim, is that the metaverse is a massively scaled and interoperable network of real-time rendered three D virtual worlds which can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an effectively unlimited number of users. An individual sense of presence, and with the continuity of data such as identity, history, entitlements, objects, communications, and payments. Now there is a lot of buzzwords in there,
1: <laughs>
2: and there's a lot-
1: there's something I didn't hear him say. I did not hear him say Facebook, Meta, or Mark Zuckerberg at all.
2: <laughs> Specifically, uh, I think you'll hear a lot of us in the industry say that. Well, leave out those references quite deliberately, and intentionally. <laughs> Um, and and yeah, there's, there's, there's good rationale as to why. And look, you know, to unpack what I just said there in terms of what was again, full of acronyms and and buzzwords, um, you know, really, I think the kind of key building blocks is that within the metaverse, it is this persistent state. So it's not a case of where you're on the internet and when you want information or you want to post something or your phone is actually on that you're receiving this kind of bi-directional data flow. It is that it's consistently on, you're always in it. It isn't the case where you have your mobile phone, you put it away and it goes. And what that actually entails is the, the idea that life itself is full of sensors. Your pockets would be lined with sensors. your hands would be lined with sensors, and so on and so forth. So that there is a digital clone or replica of you that exists in a persistent 3D world that is constantly interacting and constantly doing things. Now that seems a little bit dystopian or a little bit strange, and I would argue it kind of is. And that kind of brings me to my first point of kind of where I, or at least we at well, Volta kind of see where the metaverse is headed. And and to tell that kind of story where we think is headed, I think the best way is to kind of describe the evolution of the internet and another couple of buzzwords I'm sure people have been reading about in terms of Web3 you know, if we look at that parallel in Web3 and the metaverse and mixed reality, they're all getting conflated as, as concepts. And, you know, just kind of spell out the difference because that helps kind of deconstruct what's going on here. You know, the concept of Web3 is let i mean, let's take like the evolution. So Web1 was I have a fixed line modem internet um, from a dial-up rather. And I'm at my desk on a what was a desktop back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I am receiving information. I type in a certain website and I get information, but I can't read it. I can, I can only read it, rather. I can't write to it. So it was this unidire- unilateral rather, data flow. With Web2, it was then the idea, it kind of prospered around the boom of the mobile internet, sort of when iPhone 2 came out, um, where the idea was not only could I read content from the internet, but I could write to it. I could upload images. I could upload text if I wanted to, to places place like Wikipedia. And that's the kind of current age that we've been in, which is if you can really imagine uh, let's look at, you know, any kind of one of these platforms, you are posting content and receiving content. Again, in that sense, Web2 is the internet. It's the current manifestation of what we have going on. Uh, you wouldn't say the internet is Facebook or Instagram, to, uh, to Randy's point from earlier, you would say it's the collection of all individual sites. Now with Web3, the idea is you can both read, write and interact with whatever is available. And that's the key distinguishment there that you're interacting with it. Because interactions don't have to be to the master website, they can be with other users in exchange of value. And for me, this is where we start getting closer to the idea of what a future metaverse will state will be. Because one key definition that all proponents of the metaverse say is that it must be interoperable. In other words, if I am on Meta's metaverse or Epic Games or Fortnite's metaverse, a true metaverse is that the metaverse overlines all of those. I can move as my 3D identity from Meta's infrastructure to Fortnite's infrastructure. I have the same wallet, the same payment infrastructure, the same identity, the same track record and history. Things I have purchased in one space, like Fortnite, should transfer directly across the meta. Now, I don't think or believe we'll ever get to that state of interoperability because the product implications are ginormous essentially at a very kind of basic and native state, you would have to get anyone who's building their own version of the metaverse to agree to import all of the assets that exist in a different metaverse. So easy example is gaming. If I'm Riot Games and I've made whatever a A game and whether it's, whether it's Rockstars, Ganseth Auto, whatever it might be, I've sold loads of merch and loads of weapons and avatar upgrades and things like that to my customers. But how do I persuade another production studio that has their own backlog, their own tickets to go and import the things I've already sold to my customers unless I am financially incentivizing them? But what can I incentivize them with? Well, it's only the money I've made from selling those pieces of 3D content previously. In other words, I can't think of, we can't think of a mechanism that actually creates the incentive structure to want these individual companies to play a a unified game. So to me, and how we've been optimizing Volta and, and kind of a lot of the kind of ways we see the kind of future of this is that the metaverse isn't some black box. It isn't something that's siloed and lives in a digital state of interoperability because that feels, again, a little bit dystopian and just doesn't feel realistic. To us, it is an overlay of reality. It's the idea that I'm still transcending the physical spaces. I'm still going on my usual day, going to different shops or to restaurants or whatever I might do. But I do have access to this metaverse will stay on my phone when I so wish that can help complement experience and augment the experience. And, you know, that get then gets blurry to AR and metaverse, but it's the idea that it's there if you need it, but not there if you don't want it.
1: But before we go too far into that space, I just want to get a couple of things straight. Yes. My son spends all of his time in Roblox and Fortnite and things like that. Um, you mentioned earlier 3D. So, And interactive. So he is definitely interactive. It is definitely a two-dimensional interface because he's not wearing goggles. So are they aspects of a metaverse? Are they metaverse light? Are they – what would you call those things?
2: I would definitely lean on the metaverse-like scenario. And, you know, those are two great examples. They're the examples that come up a lot. You know, the Fortnites and and, and a lot of games come up a lot, video games, because why? It's the closest parallel people can often think of right now because – yes you know they are massively scaled you have these mmo games again fortnite um are they interoperable no if i play one game i can't move all my my history and logs over to another game so it doesn't cross that pick. but it is real-time rendered a lot of those you know let's be careful here on what people mean by 3d virtual worlds you can be in a 3d medium in a 2d plane so like youtube 360 is 3d i can watch a video i can move it around there is three dimensions that are being rendered but I'm just viewing it in a 2D manner. So actually, a lot of games do tick that 3D box as well. But where a lot of them fall short is, again, that interoperability piece. That is a piece that consistently seems to kind of break down when you go further into these, these examples. Um, because the other things, you know, individual sense of presence, yes, I can be my own avatar, I can pick my own character, I can, I can often in these kind of games uh, change how I look, and there are an unlimited number of users in most cases. Maybe not unlimited, but, you know the technology has advanced significantly in the last couple of years. So long story short, we would argue those aren't metaverses at all. Even saying it in plural isn't right. Uh, (laughs) And it does show the community or users where we could end up. And the idea then is what if I could be in Fortnite one second and then Minecraft the next second and be the same thing, the same one with the same wallet and the same information.
0: So one of the things I find really curious about any sort of hyped up conceptual technical direction is how as a, a, a kind of un, an entrepreneur and a designer and, and a product thinker you navigate what's possible and the future direction that it could go in um, a, and also sort of what's available now to understand where the opportunities are to serve customers in new and interesting ways. Like it sounds like you know the, the space incredibly well and you have a very strong idea of where it's going. So with that in mind, how do you then harness that kind of that view and that knowledge to find products to build?
2: Great question. Uh that question has been my the personal bane of my life as a kind of, I guess a serial founder or someone that's been around a lot of different startups because you're right, you don't have a north star. And we're having to constantly define what our north star is, and that is moving because, yeah, the industry is changing. You know, prior startups, my last one was in retail tech. It was more of a, a mass acquisition play. Once we build a technology, it was a case of grow and scale, and iterate, and go through that classic, you know, MVP phase, build, measure, learn, and so on and so forth. But you're right; those kind of those kind of growth loops or, or product loops, um, when you're looking at a space that is trying to trying to create a metaverse product, quite often in that learn phase this last step of that iteration you're actually learning the sector's changed or there's some new technology that's become available and what you've just built and tested actually is all completely redundant so the way we've gone about it and i think a lot of people in this space are you know they have different approaches um, by and large this one has to me working for at least us and keeps us grounded is where are we now where do we think we're going to be in the midterm and what is the kind of blue sky thinking in the long run and how we manage that from our perspective is you know looking what we do and how we build is the kind of the, the short to medium run, sort of a three-year view. So here's the available technologies. Here's what my users need and want, and here's their pain points. How can we solve that in the immediate term that actually gets us metrics? You know, we're still VC-backed. We still have targets to hit. They are more friendly because they are deep tech investors, and they know this is a seven- to ten-year play rather than a three- to five-year, go down the series route and and scale. But, yeah, so we have to hit those north-term objectives to get, to get scale and some sort of usage but what we've constantly done when we make product decisions is think okay is there a way we can future proof ourselves because the worst idea is that we've built a product that works really really well in the short term and come three years time some new technology comes out a new startup uses that new technology and is able to disrupt what we've already done in just three years and one way we've done that and to kind of share an example is well a little bit storytelling so for example we launched in vr Volta's ar- original point was, you know, you'd download an artist, a musician would download the, the desktop app, would create a 3D interactive experience, and the user would consume this in virtual reality, because that's where we were in March 2020. COVID happened, live v- events and entertainment had stopped, so VR headset adoption was skyrocketing. And we thought, well, we've, now we've got our opportunity here, VR is finally coming out this VR winter that happened in 2016. Okay, let's build a VR. And very, very, very quickly, we saw that VR was not going to get the usage that everyone had spoken of yet again. Sure, the total available market started to increase as people bought headsets, but there just wasn't the right content for consumers. It's great for B2B. It's great for enterprise and training and surgicals. um, But it isn't for entertainment because entertainment is social. It isn't for even potentially for any kind of fitness instructions or anything like that because you don't know your actual real space. So upon seeing that and seeing actually that VR made users in a social context feel very lonely, we pivoted away from VR. Um, and that's a key sort of thing here. So we moved from VR to actually streaming 3D content in a 2D manner. So 3D content through YouTube consumed on a 2D plane or seeing it in LEDs. In, in but when we made that decision, we knew, or we, we, we believe, at some point in the next 5, 10, 15 years, at some point in that trajectory, there will be a form of hardware that gets pushed out that will hopefully get uh, the scale and become ubiquitous. You know, something tangential to the iPhone and what it did for mobile internet is potentially what Apple's working on for their new mixed reality headset or some augmented reality headset or something, you know, if you just follow the kind of, the plane of innovation, there's this, there will always be new hardware that comes out. So how we've hedged ourselves is, okay, we're currently showing 3D content on a 2D medium. We believe there's gonna be some sort of headset or some sort of device that will enable a more enriched experience at some point in the future. So every time someone, an artist rather, makes an experience in Volta, we're saving all that metadata. We're saving the entire 3D experience. And the way we then hedge ourselves is, okay, yes, fans right now consume this medium in 2D, but once some form of hardware becomes ubiquitous, we will have the biggest library of user-generated 3D content by definition in the world, because we've been doing it throughout every single show, and we are a mass market play. Um, and that's one way in which we've kind of got our sights on the near term and how can we actually follow the market right now, which is in 2D, but know that something will be there in 3D in the future. How have we done it? We've, we're just using a UGC library for 3D content.
1: We talk about product-led strategies a lot at Mind the Product. The idea is that the product just isn't part of the customer experience. It is the customer experience. Ultimately, being product led means the product becomes the vehicle for acquiring and retaining customers, driving growth, and influencing organizational priorities.
0: But being product led is more than just a buzzword, it takes real effort and practice and has the power to transform your business.
1: To help you kickstart or accelerate your product led journey, Mind a Product are excited to announce a brand new certification course all about what it takes to be product led.
0: Brought to you in partnership with Pendo, this online course will help you deepen your understanding of product-led strategies and what it means to put the product at the center of your organization.
1: You'll learn tactics and best practices you can use to take your company and your career to the next level.
0: You can expect three hours of engaging instructor-led videos,
1: seven educational modules on the most important topics in product-led growth.
0: A curriculum developed by industry leaders and product-led experts, which sounds awesome.
1: And an optional exam to check your knowledge and earn a certification badge.
0: The course is usually $149, but you can get it for free for a limited time. OMG. <laughs> Use the code Go Led to register now at mindtheproduct.com forward slash GOPRODUCTLED.
1: And that code is GO space, product Space led. The same as in the URL, except there's no spaces in the URL, just in the code. So you're you're designing for now and for future adoption. You're trying to keep an eye on both. That's a, a tricky play. And as you said, you're VC backed. And one of the things that the VCs are looking for is this elusive definition of product market fit. Yes but you're trying to do it in a space where the market itself is still evolving. So how do you define it? And what What is the approach that you take with your backers to say, yes, we're on the right track? It can't be just we've got some adoption now because, as you said, the market is still really evolving.
2: Yeah, I think from from a VC perspective, the short answer is is perceived market share. That is the metric that they are targeting when they look at these kind of nascent markets, uh, with little proof points and no real understanding of where they can go and where the true value and application lies. Um, and that is admittedly quite a woolly metric because how do you define a perceived market share? What even is the market and therefore how can you have a share of it? And therefore it comes down to things like how many events have there been in a given year that are metaversal? A metaverse like how many of them did you do? Okay, that is the next percentage of what we see is available in the market. It's things like share of press weirdly enough, is a metric that comes up. How much share are you getting? Are you a startup that's punching above your weight? Or is the Microsofts and the metas of the world still taking dominance? And therefore, we should see that as a perceived risk because you're not getting the coverage user. It is these kind of woolly metrics, but in, and it gets harder for us because we're early stage. And we're going into our, you know, our A round and you know, being touted that the metric we need to do is actually uh, perceived market share, but getting more granular within it it's still the metric of, of growth. You know, They still want to see 20% minimum month-to-month growth, ideally 30%. Growth of what? It is usage. You know, It is up to us to define what that is. In the context of Volta, it's, it's shows, and those shows could be either live in a venue, like an actual concert, could be live-streamed, or both. And when we do the hybrid event is when we get really excited because that is very true to our proposition of marrying the physical world and the digital world. Um, but it is tough to define that market. And you know, we personally are introducing a lot of gaming mechanics that have existed in the gaming space now for about five or 10 years. One of them being in-app payments, you know, the Candy Crush model of I can pay an extra two pounds and have another life or I can get some special weapons or whatever it might be. We're using that same mechanics and applying it to the music space. For us, it's to, to become an incentive for users to want to watch the experience as opposed to just listen to it. So, we are looking at a lot of gaming metrics. And that's another way that this has been kind of unfolding, which is okay, look to your closest market, what sort of business model you're operating in. Can we draw parallels from a market that we already somewhat understand and already exists? In the context of the metaverse, the gaming is the closest thing to the metaverse. So, that is often those proof points or those metrics that we will use and ground ourselves within. Um, Because again, gaming is consumers, sure, it's not the same sector. Um, we are leveraging a micropayments model. So that's the space we look closely to. Um, but it is hard when the market is is shifting and evolving. And, you know, I think these metrics or ways of approaching them, they can work. And in the context of VR, which I started with, they clearly didn't work because actually where the market has moved is now pretty much entirely B2B. And you've got the even the metas of the world push doubling down on B2B and competing with HTC and these other players in the space.
0: It feels like there's um, like a whole new genre of products that will come about as part of these metaversal type experiences and, and platforms. One of the lessons we've learned, I guess, from like social media platforms and and the introduction of those um, is this like ethical point of view of, you know, how do we juggle encouraging use with a healthy like mindset towards digital consumption or or, and that kind of thing is there anything from a kind of metaversal sort of space and an ethical sort of standpoint that you've had to like think about in the um products or or the the experiences that you're thinking about from from volta's point of view or just you know in the sort of broader metaversal area
2: Great question. Um, it, it certainly comes up a lot. And, you know, one one North Star is, again, this, this feels like almost a, a digging session at matter, but one, you know, one North Star we had, or at least a, a huge mission statement when we first started building Volta, we knew what we were signing up for. You know, ultimately, take what I said earlier in terms of, you know, we hedge ourselves by creating this 3D library of user-generated content such that it's ready to deploy on whatever hardware there'll be. Well, you don't get too far away from the idea of, of simulation theory, or at least being able to walk through the streets of New York and decide, today, I want to be in the psychedelic jungle instead. And you have this preloaded library that is about this other world. And knowing that that's where this could inevitably be head is, of course, a little bit scary. It's a sentiment that we think someone's going to do this anyway. So yes, ethics have played a huge part in what we do and how we build um, from the very beginning. Like I said, the mission statement was we will never sell ads, period. We will never optimize for addiction. Um, we don 't want people to be stuck in these places and trying to, um, to be all consumed. The interesting but parallel point is, we do optimize for engagement. Now, what do those two different things mean? And this goes back to where I first started about the progression of the Internet from Web one to Web two to Web three. And this concept about data ownership and data privacy actually is more of a Web three philosophical statement than it actually is something into the metaverse. Um, and you know that 's being driven by culture by Gen Z, by some of the things that have come out from Meta, by the whole uh, point and push from Apple into secure privacy. And that's the idea that users should own their own content, they should own their own data, and they should sort of choose if they want to be monetized from that. Um, so how that's played into Volta is you know, fans, and the way we monetize is fans pay for interactions. They pay to change the experience they're watching. They, che- they pay for the artist or musician to do something. Their choice, we don't monetize them, they choose if they want to contribute to it. Now, of course, adopt, you know, optimizing for engagement in that scenario means we need to make those interactions really compelling and exciting. But the point there is it's a genuine value exchange. You know, you're not kind of getting people hooked on your product, getting to view content, and then throwing ads in their face every second. It's a case of, if you like what you're doing, come play. If you don't, don't, which again is a gaming philosophy. That's why gaming does come through a lot into these kind of um, these kind of pieces. Um, you know the other side is that often in the metaverse, another word that comes through is in a decentralized autonomous organization. DAO is kind of the buzzword that people, or an acronym that people throw around. <laughs> um, and you know, whilst ethically that's amazing, it's people control the mechanism they're watching, they control the experience or the product itself, and they have a voting structure. And that's where you know various proof of work or proof of stake cryptos come into play. Uh, where, you know, you have your DAOs around a company and people have ownership of certain tokens, actually get a stake and a voice in the future of that company. Um, that also brings its own ethical challenges because it's unmoderated. And if it's bi-directional content, there's another funny concept we have called, uh, funny enough, in the um, sort of content space called Time to Penis, which is quite literally uh, how long it takes when you have an unmoderated system where you can upload content that someone will put a dick pic in, in your system. And that, again, presents problems, right? Because it doesn't have to be TTP, which actually is a dev acronym, no joke, for this thing. So, yes, it's, in terms of TTP, it's not some, uh, some acronym I've just sort of made up. That is a genuine game developer acronym for this exact thing. And the problem gets compounded with things like hate crime um, and, you know, rude imagery of all sorts of nature. That itself is a problem. And we know if we want to have a truly metaverse experience, we have to also build a very sophisticated piece of moderation software um, that can plow through all the pieces that's been uploaded and make sure it's safe for other viewers to watch. And yeah, one of the other challenges is not just a, a case of, you know, what content is being uploaded and consumed by other members of your DAO or metaverse or experience. I quite like that word these days. I'm just calling it experience. But it's also around the point that Not only do you have moderation of content, but moderation of users. Users are talking to one another. You have that classic sort of forum-like system with chat. How do you stop someone who's potentially significantly older from interacting with someone who's potentially significantly younger? Now, of course, you have safety blocks and you have other systems, but those safety blocks work when you have a closed system. People within Meta know how old their subscribers are by their birth, by by their, their users are by their birth year. But once you start opening up your system and become an open system, which is truly what needs to happen in the metaverse, these types of information exchanges get harder and harder. And, you know, we even actually have quite significant laws in place that actually prohibit these things like GDPR. And these are some of the really, truly massive questions that need answering for any of these things to actually accelerate and actually become what is truly a metaverse.
0: So it sounds like there's some massive challenges with building products for metaversal type experiences. Uh and, and you've talked about some of them around interoperability as well as the kind of ethical questions that you've just covered there. But um if there is anyone that hasn't been put off yet by by those and is still really interested, are there any other kind of areas that people should really watch out for when they're thinking about doing more in this space?
2: Yeah, I think you know, and this isn't to, to scare anyone away. It truly is a really, really exciting spa- space. The pace of innovation is astronomical and there's a lot of deep thinkers that are involved. Um, you know, the learnings you come across are truly inspirational. And, you know, that, that in itself, it's, it's really kind of a, a high pace and exciting place. But, you know, other challenges, they're a little bit more second order, um, of course, hardware. You know, if you're thinking through some metaverse product, is the hardware out there that might support your use case? You know, consumer-facing hardware could be VR headsets, mobile phones, haptic gloves, so you can actually feel things. Um, Enterprise hardware could be uh, hardware that's allowing you to create virtual or AR-based environments like industrial cameras, projection and tracking systems, scanning sensors, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, you need to be obviously thinking, uh, first and foremost, do I have the hardware out there to support this? Um, VR, there is now a market. It is a bit niche, but, you know, if you're thinking through something like that, VR could support that. Um, but a lot of those hardware technologies are still a little bit behind the curve, and we're only starting to see those catch up. Networking, you know, the definition of metaverse being persistent means you need a high-quality, real-time connection, um, which ideally has some sort of decentralized data transmission. Um, the idea of going through a fixed-line network on current broadband probably won't work if you have an outage. And this thing needs to be upline the whole time. And then there's other pieces. You know, there's computing power, a lot of the metaverse, because it's 3 d um, you know, it's live rendering of 3D environments means you often need high computational power and high graphically um, GPUs, gra- gra- high graphic computational power. Um, virtual platforms, do they exist? Can they support what you're doing? Is there, is there an interchange of tools and standards? You know, we have .jpg, .pings for images. We've got .mp4s and stuff for videos, but we have nothing when it comes to a metaverse and what the common file format should be.
1: Mitch? We've only got time for one more question. This has been fantastic, and it follows neatly from what you were just talking about. But you're working with both creators, who some of who are uh, uh, early adopters who, know, who are playing around with all this, and with consumers, you know, people who are, who are consuming the, the content, who, again, are fairly early adopters in many cases. But you're trying to plan for more mass market adoption on this. How do you do research with these types of personas where most of your potential market isn't even considering this yet?
2: Another great question. Uh, I think on our perspective, weirdly enough, artists are less of an early adopter than consumers. I think fashion is not so weird, Um, especially in the music space because the barriers to entry for musicians is really low. You know, anyone could be a vocalist. It doesn't mean they have to be any good. And anyone can play the drums doesn't mean they're good at playing the drums but they still are playing the drums and singing. Um, and in that space, people are consistently trying to outcompete one another. How do I stand out from the crowd? Knowing that maybe at least this, this day and age, it's not as simple as just making a track or releasing a single. I actually have to do something with it. So in the artist side, we've actually optimized this whole metaverse or 3D content for the artists. They are more interested in it. They wanna stand out and they wanna create a new form of content or medium that actually speaks to their consumers. So in, in, in that vein, Our tool is what does the whole 3D piece. It's a standalone software that artists download and have their mixed reality version of Photoshop. So with them, it's the usual kind of research sessions. You know, we see a minimum of five artists a week. We will sit them down with a tool, do the classic sort of research exercises. um, And of course, run quantitative surveys on our user base, which are artists. The consumer side, you're exactly right. You know when we were building this experience so that again desktop tool for the artist they project or broadcast the experience and originally it was the vr consumers who were in vr didn't understand what they needed to do because they didn't know what could be done and that was a problem in itself but we moved to 2d so youtube and twitch and facebook live and tiktok are all primary channels now because consumers are not one the wiser as to what medium they're consuming to them it's video it just looks like really exciting, flashy video, and they can use chat. And consumers already use a chat on Twitch. Currently, they you know they interact with the artist directly, and the artist will pick up what they're saying in chat and kind of call it out during a Twitch session. We're automating that, really. We're taking those keywords and those chat commands and turning those into predefined interactions. Like I type in the word Volta, and a big Volta logo comes on the screen, explodes, spins around in 3D and disappears again. So that's how we've currently gone about it, which is give the consumers what they already know because educating consumers in a mass fashion is a very expensive marketing effort at the very least, let alone trying to get research and qualified research back from them. But on the artist side, that's where we do a lot of our heavy lifting. Um, you know. And if you go down the artist adoption curve, and this is what we've been doing slowly over time, your top tier artists, the ones who've already been doing these things, the Travis Scotts of the world, the Justin Biebers and those kind of people, they know this space and their teams are very equipped with it. But as we've been slowly picking away and going down the classic pyramid from high-tier artists to mid-tier artists to club DJs and so on and so forth, we're seeing these nuances appear more and more and more. But we benchmark them to what we know some of the spaces has already done. And that means that we're qualifying our research at every step. And we only move kind of down the ladder if we know what we're picking up is qualified.
1: Okay, so... I appreciate all that, but it makes me think we missed a trick and that we're not cool enough because we didn't do this episode in Volta.
2: That would have been that would have been very good. <laughs> 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 yeah, turn video on for that one uh, to really see it all. It's might, but um, you know there could always be a, a show done next year if you guys are planning to release a, <laughs> uh, a video version, and we could wrap the whole thing and use all of our audio to drive different things in Volta.
0: That sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, we'll see. If people demand an encore, maybe we'll have to do it
0: that
2: (laughs) way. Well, it'd be a pleasure.
0: Mitch, it's been so great talking to you today on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing.
0: The product experience is the first
1: and the best
0: podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith.
1: And me, Randy Silver.
0: Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor.
1: Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, Regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide.
0: If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank.